Well, good morning. As you uh, well know, we are working our way through some different, uh, different sermons, different lessons, all pertaining to the church. And uh, of course, Brother Jordan helped us with the Lord's Supper last week, and so it'll come to no surprise that we are going to look at baptism this morning. And I've entitled this sermon, Baptism, Your Kingdom Passport. Now, when I say the word baptism, it, it very often conjures up different ideas on exactly what that is. For some Christians, baptism is an area of confusion. It, it is this very sort of strange religious ritual that we, for some reason, have to do. Uh, we, we know it doesn't or can't save you, and yet there seem to be verses that say exactly that. For others, baptism is an area of conflict. Throughout evangelical churches, there are different ways of doing baptism. There's the Salvation Army. They don't practice baptism at all. They just avoid the whole discussion. They don't do it at all. Then there are many churches, of course, who baptize infants, and they insist that this is the biblical way. There are other churches that steadfastly refuse that and say a, baptize, a believing adult by immersion is the biblical way. And so there's these discussions, there's these arguments, there's these debates. And so for many people, baptism just becomes an area of trepidation, an area of conflict. And so we see it perhaps more as a church issue as opposed to a theological one. We're content to say, well, that was the way my church did it, or this is the way my new church does it, as opposed to saying, this is the way the Bible explains it. This is what the Bible says. And so they really lack conviction on it one way or the other. They're happy to inherit, inherit whatever tradition they have taken. And they see the division or the infighting or the discussions as unnecessary, if not altogether sinful. After all, baptism is only a symbol. It doesn't have any reality in and of itself. It just points to something that is real. And, and so surely the symbol really isn't that important. God says be baptized, but exactly how we understand that and how we practice it and how we do it and how we insist upon it surely doesn't matter that much. There is no reality in baptism. It just points to the reality. And so really we should be free to do whatever we want or whatever our church has historically done. The Bible doesn't afford us that luxury. Let me give you an illustration that hopefully will help you understand that. Perhaps I said something like this to my wife. Honey, I don't think that I should wear my wedding rings anymore. After all, that's not love. That's not a marriage or a, a wedding that just points to love and a wedding. And, and, and the symbol isn't important. So I'm, I've taken the liberty of removing the pictures where you can see my wedding ring. I've removed myself from the burden of wearing it because after all, it's just the symbol. There's no reality in the ring. A married, a married or a non-married person could wear the ring. And so I've taken down the pictures where you can see it. I've taken down the pictures also where I'm wearing a suit and you in a wedding dress because that's not actually marriage. That's not actually love. That's just symbols that point to it. Now, if that sounds rude, inconsiderate, and selfish, that's because that's exactly what it is. We would never say that to our spouse. I would never say that to my spouse. And believe me, I've never been accused of being a romantic. Even I know not to say things like that. 
And yet, when it comes to the symbols God has given us, we sometimes find ourselves saying something very similar. And so our purpose this morning is simple and straightforward. We want to understand what baptism is and answer the question, why Christ has given it as a gift to his church. What is baptism and why has Christ given it as a gift to his church? So what is baptism? Well, Bobby Jameson in his book, Going Public, why baptism is required for membership, suggests we should think of baptism along the following lines. This is what he says, quote, baptism is the passport of the kingdom and the kingdom's citizens swearing in ceremony. Dear friends, that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. He continues, Jesus established the church as an embassy of that kingdom. He gave the church the keys of the kingdom in order to identify its citizens before the world by affirming the professions of those who credibly confess faith in him and the initial and initiating means by which the church identifies individuals as kingdom citizens is baptism. Baptism is the passport of the kingdom. Now to be sure, baptism doesn't save you. Only faith in the king does that. Only a personal relationship with the king himself can save you. But baptism is the way the church recognizes and affirms that relationship exists. It doesn't make you a citizen of the kingdom. It publicly identifies you as someone who already belongs to that kingdom. It's been said that baptism is the team jersey. It lets everybody know who you're playing for and who you're playing against. It doesn't make you part of the team. The contract does that. But it tells everyone that there is, in fact, a contract there, that you do, in fact, play for this team. So our purpose this morning is to offer three specific aspects of this present yet coming kingdom that you publicly identify with in baptism. And to identify with this kingdom is to identify with the king of that kingdom. And so we will use this as our outline this morning. We will say that baptism is about identification. It publicly identifies you with Christ's covenant, Christ's work, and Christ's people. It is about publicly identification. So first, let's look at Christ's covenant. Baptism identifies you with Christ's covenant. Now, if you are familiar with scripture at all, that you recognize that God speaks to men through covenants. And, and, and it is primarily in and through the biblical covenants that we see the storyline of Scripture being moved forward. It is the covenants that sort of take what was given and usually add more information to it and move the story forward. And so if you want to understand the story of Scripture, you have to understand what is happening in the biblical covenants. And a covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. And so sometimes we see in scripture that this covenant has rights and responsibilities, duties on both sides, God and man. And the covenant with Moses is an example of this covenant. 
More commonly, however, in scripture, we see that covenants, though there is an acknowledgement on both sides, only have conditions on the one side. That is to say that there's only one party who can actually nullify or fulfill the covenant. And so God's covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and Israel, or the new covenant, are examples of such a covenant. And it is primarily the new covenant where Derek read from this morning that will receive our attention because the new covenant is the final covenant given to us in scripture. It is the telos covenant. It brings the whole story together. It really is sort of the the eschatological covenant. It is the final covenant. And so we want to look at that. And baptism is closely identified with that new covenant. It is the sign of the new covenant. And so if we want to understand what baptism is, we have to understand some of the promises contained in the new covenant. And so that's what we will look at this morning. And so turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, where we we heard read from this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want to highlight for you three salvific blessings mentioned in the new covenant. And baptism is going to identify you with these promises. Verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. The first thing we see promised in the new covenant is a cleansing from sin. A cleansing from sin. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols, I will cleanse you. You see the the nature of the covenant right off the bat. It is God saying, I will, I will, I will. The, The basic promise is that of forgiveness, that idolatry of the heart is going to be dealt with. Under the old covenant or or God's covenant with Moses, there was forgiveness, but it was different than the forgiveness that we see in the new covenant. Forgiveness under Moses was genuine and life-changing, but it was based on the fact that God forgives by passing over sin. That is to say this, that in the Old Testament, there was real forgiveness, but there wasn't a real cleansing, okay? There was the temporary putting aside of sin, and God in his grace would not hold that sin against a sinner, but that sin was simply simply put aside. It wasn't finally and fully dealt with. And so there was forgiveness, but there wasn't cleansing, and so it was forgiveness of a different type. You might say that in the old covenant, punishment was suspended. And in the new covenant, sin is expunged. Through Jeremiah, God says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It is also significant that in describing this cleansing associated with the the new covenant, is clearly internal. The imagery of water is used. Water, of course, is the world's best-known cleansing agent. And so the people would have understood the basic idea when God uses the illustration of water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. It spoke of a cleansing. And the people knew this. They understood. And we understand that our hearts are evil. Our hearts are dirty, and we need cleansing. We are dirty, stained people. And we need internal and permanent forgiveness. 
And so the prophets explain that by drawing their attention to the idea of water, because water would become the representation of cleanliness from sin. You understand? Okay. The second thing we see promised in the new covenant is a new relationship to God. It, it is as a result of that divine forgiveness, this real, this genuine forgiveness, not passing over sin, but dealing with it, of course, through Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, the covenant head. It is because of that that we see the second blessing, a new relationship to God. It's because of that that a new relationship to God is possible. And again, in the old covenant, there was a relationship with God. There was a real and genuine relationship that God's people could have with him, but it was limited. It was limited. And you know this by reading through the Mosaic Covenant. It was limited by times of the year and by who could go through the veil and into the Holy of Holies and so things like that. And so we see that there were very strict rules about how and when God was to be approached. And it wasn't always the safest thing to do in the world, as you well know. But because in the new covenant, Christ himself, God himself, the God-man, is the mediator of the new covenant, it changes the relationship between God and man. It is direct, and it is unmediated in the sense that we have direct access to God because the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, is the mediator. And that's why in the New Testament, John, for example, says you don't need teachers. He doesn't mean people to explain the Bible or to preach or anything like that. He means teachers in the sense of a mediator. You do not need somebody to mediate that relationship between you and God. It is promised in the new covenant that that relationship changes. It is a new relationship to God. We are priests. We are taught directly by God, the Holy Spirit. And so baptism, as the sign of the new covenant, signifies that this is your relationship to God. This is your reality. And that leads to the third aspect of new covenantal blessings that we want to forgiveness. And, th and that is something that theologians call the baptism of the Holy Spirit or baptism by the Holy Spirit, as forgiveness is realized and this new relationship with God is possible, we see that this new relationship is actuated by God himself. And he sends the Holy Spirit to enable obedience to the word of God. And so notice what Ezekiel says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will give you a heart of stone. From, I will take away your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the new covenant looks forward to a time when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in greater measure. Again, was the Holy Spirit existent in the covenant with Moses? Of course he was. Is he in the Old Testament? Of course he is. Is he sent in greater measure in the New Testament? Yes, in the New Covenant. 
And, and so the spirit would come and write the law of God on the hearts of men and women and cause them to walk in the truth. And ultimately, this looks forward to our glorification when our obedience would be perfect. And yet, nonetheless, we understand scripture very clearly to teach that the spirit has indeed come. And so it is a present reality for us as well. And in fact, the, the Holy Spirit coming was one of the chief prophetic signs that the eschatological days would were coming. It was the messianic age. It signified that the messianic age has come. For example, Isaiah says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and on the streams of ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. It is precisely this baptism of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament writers pick up upon. Peter writes, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will notice that the baptism that saves is not external. It is not the removal of dirt from the body. It is internal. It is the inward witness, uh, the inward appeal to God with a clear conscience. Holy Spirit baptism, therefore, you need to get this. It is a one-time event that occurs once at the moment of salvation. That is when the believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit. You note that Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and every other mention of the new covenant, there is no indication at all that we are to seek this baptism. It is a one-time event. It happens. It happens fully, and it happens equally to all believers at the moment of salvation. It is the moment of conversion. It is not an experience to be sought. It is a reality to be thankful for. And so baptism, the idea of being immersed into water before the church signifies this internal reality. It says, yes, that reality is true. That is true for me. And baptism then points to that. John MacArthur says this, water baptism then is the outward post-conversion demonstration of an inward reality that has already occurred at conversion. You understand what he's saying? There is something that is promised in the new covenant the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens. It happens once, and it happens to every believer. If that's true of you, baptism looks back on that. Baptism is the outward demonstration that that inward reality has already happened. That's why Jesus said, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized, that is immersed in water, to be, to be baptized is the first command given in the New Testament to a believing Christian. That is the very first command the Christian is given. It is to go, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, because baptism points to that faith, that belief, that baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the public acknowledgement of God, both who he is and what he has done. Or to put it another way, baptism is the public identification of you with the new covenant realities. It is affirming that those spiritual realities are, in fact, spiritual realities for you. 
They are indeed realities of your life. Baptism tells us that. It's the very first thing that Peter says as well. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the church being but a few hours old, and look what Peter says, uh, verse uh, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's that new covenant language again. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the new covenant language again. Go back to Acts 2, 22 to 36. It was those men who just heard the gospel preached. Look what it says. Verse 37, after hearing the gospel, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They said, what should we do? They had heard the gospel preached by Peter. They were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? And Peter's answer is repent and be baptized. Clearly then, baptism was administered to those who had heard the gospel, repented of their sins, of which they were forgiven, received the Holy Spirit, and believed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 44, they're referred to as all who believed. Uh, Acts 2, verse 44, yeah. Do you understand? You recognize the new covenant language there. Baptism then becomes the first instruction a new Christian is to do. Be baptized. Why? Because it points to the event that just happened inwardly. We can't see what happens inwardly. We can see what happens outwardly. And so baptism is the outward expression of that inward reality. And so we see that baptism is connected with the Holy Spirit and has the normative practice of the church going back 2,000 years right to the day of Pentecost. In fact, the, the practice is so widespread in the book of Acts one commentator goes so far as to say that the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. It's not a category the New Testament knows. And so the first thing that we want to impress upon you is that to get baptized by being immersed in water is a public act of obedience that affirms that you believe yourself to be in the New Covenant. It is you telling a local church that your sins have been forgiven. It is you telling a local church that you have been granted a new relationship by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have been immersed into the Holy Spirit. And baptism, then, is your public card that says, that is true of me. So baptism publicly identifies you with Christ's covenants. Secondly, the second major identification that baptism makes, it identifies you with Christ's covenants, it identifies you with Christ's work. Jesus Christ is the covenantal head of God's people, okay? The covenants relay the promises and advance the story of redemption. Jesus Christ exists in that story to actually accomplish salvation for those people. You understand? And that's why we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And, and it's doubtful that that was intended to provide some formulaic introduction to baptism. It was used to designate Christian baptism from, from pagan baptisms or actually the baptism of John the Baptist as well. But the idea of being baptized into the name of somebody... It was, a, it was a Jewish concept that basically meant on account of, or with an eye towards, or with respect to. 
The, the idea is that you are being made over to Jesus Christ. It is your identification with him. And it is the point in time when a former enemy of Christ makes his final public surrender. It identif with identifying to Christ in name. A baptized Christian also identifies to Christ's great saving works. We have already seen how baptism identifies you with the cleansing from sin promised in the new covenant. In Acts 22, we read, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. There's that new covenant language again, calling on his name, identifies you with Jesus Christ. And so baptism explains in symbolic or typological fashion exactly how that was accomplished. Jesus Christ, as the new covenant head of a new humanity, died on behalf of his saints and rose again on the third day. And so when we are immersed in water, we picture the death of our old selves and the resurrection of our new selves. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, uh, begin reading in verse 3. We'll go down to verse 11. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there's a few things that I want to point out to you. First, in verses 3 and 4, baptism is linked with Christ's substitutionary death. You see that? To be united with him is to have been buried with him. The idea is, is that as Christ dies, as our covenant head, our old nature dies with him. The believer has been buried with Christ through baptism into death. Burial certifies the reality of death. And baptism is the ritual act that portrays this burial. Now, several scholars, good ones even, have questioned whether or not water baptism is in view in, in Romans 6. Is that what Paul's talking about? Perhaps it is an allusion to spirit baptism, which we've looked at, or as a metaphor referring to the incorporation of, of the believer into Christ's body, which we're going to talk about. And, and both of those are true and, and likely are in view there. But they are in view here precisely because water baptism symbolizes those truths. Water baptism is the symbol of those truths. 
as one commentator reminds us, quote, without discounting the possibility of allusions to one or more of the, these ideas, the reference to water baptism is primary. By the date of Romans, baptize had almost become a technical expression for the rite of Christian initiation by water, and this is surely the meaning the Roman Christians would have given the word. And he goes on to explain how Paul uses the term baptism some 11 other times, and in most other times, all but one, he is referring to water baptism. And so what, what Paul is teaching is that in water baptism, you publicly identify with Christ's death on your behalf. It is not the believer in his baptism is laid in his own grave, but that through that action, he is set along Jesus Christ in his grave. It is faith in the death, burial, and subsequent resurrection that leads someone to get baptized. Likewise, baptize, baptism looks back. It looks back at that faith in Christ's death, burial, and subsequent resurrection and assumes that faith in it is present. The second noteworthy fact is that baptism not only identifies you with Christ's death and burial, but also his resurrection. See, in, in baptism, we go under the water and we come back out. And some very anxious to get back out. Likewise, Christ goes into the grave and comes back out. And Paul's point is that baptism is not just a symbol of what has happened, we have died with Christ, but what will happen, we will be raised with him. Did you notice that Paul switches tenses? Look at this, verse 5, he says, we have been, that's past tense, we have been united with him in a death like his. But then he says that we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. That is future. It is a certainty, but it is a future reality. And so baptism links you to his death on your behalf, and you're dying to the old self. It also links you in typological fashion to his resurrection and your real physical coming resurrection. And so it is in both his death and his resurrection that we identify with when we are baptized. And so we are challenged to live now as if we are dead to sin. Immersing baptism vividly portrays this unification, that is with Christ. Lowering a person completely underwater clearly pictures identification with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. The baptized person united with Christ in his death has died to sin. It is declaring that that death was on your behalf and therefore you have died to sin. Bringing that person up from under the water vividly depicts identification with Christ's resurrection. And so the baptized person then is united with Christ in his resurrection. He is, as Paul says, he has been made alive to God. So when you are baptized, when you go under the water and come back up, it is a public profession 
that your old self has died. Why? How? Because Jesus Christ is your new covenant head and he died and your old self died with him. And it is symbolic that you intend to live life in the new self through the power of the Holy Spirit. Put simply, it is a proclamation that you have been made alive to God and are therefore expected to walk in the ways in which he walked. Your life ought to manifest the fruits of a new life because your old self was crucified with Christ and you are now a new creature in Christ. That is why Paul wrote to the Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Or to the Corinthians, he wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He, his old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Water baptism pictures that reality. It is a public proclamation that that reality is true for you. It is indeed a reality for you. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You see the connection of Christ's work, his death, and his resurrection to baptism. You understand how it's also connected to the new covenant. Because you are publicly proclaiming those new covenant blessings are true for you, and they are precisely true for you because you identify with Christ. You are in Christ. There is a union there between Christ. How so? His death and his resurrection. And baptism pictures both of those things. And there is one final primary identification of baptism that we want to look at this morning. And it is logically required by what we have already said and explicitly taught in scripture. And it is this. Baptism publicly identifies you with Christ's people. It publicly identifies you with Christ's covenant, with Christ's work, and thirdly, with Christ's people. If you have been united with Christ as the covenant head, it stands to reason that you align yourself with anyone else under that covenant. Or to put it in theological language, you can't identify with the head and not with the body to which that head belongs. You see? You identify, therefore, with every other believer in the new covenant. As Paul says, for just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, watch this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. You see the spirit again. You see this new covenant language. But you notice how many bodies there are? There is one body. What if you're a Jew? There is one body. What if you're a slave or a Greek or a free man? You're, there is one body. And so identifying with Christ as the covenant head identifies you with that body. You were baptized in that body. The moment you became a Christian, you were baptized into that body. Water baptism symbolizes that. It pictures that. It occurred once at the moment of salvation, and it was at that moment that you became a member of the body of Christ. You were placed into what Paul calls the new man in Ephesians 2. You were placed there. Now, notice what that means. 
This means that your spirit baptism, your salvation creates a unity that transcends all other distinctions. He talks about that in Ephesians 2, but we read it in 1 Corinthians. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Racial distinctions, economic distinctions, all of them are transcended by the fact that we have been unified by this act of salvific baptism, that is spirit baptism. Water baptism is the sacrament given to the church that formalizes this entry into the body. That's why it's seen as an initiatory rite in the body. The other sign of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, is something we practice regularly. That's what we see in scripture. As you come together, as you come together, you keep taking the Lord's Supper. In fact, he says, take it until I return. Baptism, you don't do it over and over and over again. You do it once. Why? Because it symbolizes your joining in that body. And once you're in, you're in. You can't get out. You wouldn't want to, but even if you could, you couldn't. Because you were placed in that body by the Holy Spirit. And so water baptism is the sacrament given to the church that formalizes that entrance into the body. That's why the, the New Testament portrays baptism as, as immediately happening to, to people who believe. We see this um, for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. The Ethiopian eunuch becomes a Christian, and they're driving along in their chariot, and he can't even wait to get to where he's going. They drive by some water, and he says, see, there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? The moment he was saved, the moment he recognized that it was a spiritual fact that he had been baptized into that body, he wanted to represent that. He said, what prevents me from being baptized? The household of Cornelius, the Philippian jailer, the same thing. Somebody believes, and somebody is baptized. Why so quickly? Why does, it, why does it happen so quickly? It is because of this. It is because the idea of a Christian being disconnected from a local church is not a New Testament category. We saw earlier that a, a Christian who hasn't been baptized is not something the New Testament deals with. It doesn't have a category for that kind of person. So too, a Christian not being a member, a baptized member of a local church, is not something the New Testament knows. Paul never writes in his letters to the baptized ones and now to the non-baptized ones as if those were two valid categories. The assumption is, is that if those spiritual realities are true, then you would have taken that symbol and you would have done so gladly. And so it is to recognize and formalize their entry into the body of Christ. That is why a believer was baptized shortly after conversion. This is what Robert Saucy says, to believe in Christ, quote, to believe in Christ was to profess the reality of what was signified in baptism and the intention of living a new life. All who confessed were baptized and full instructions in Christian doctrine followed, unquote. That is why we at Park City Gospel Church like almost all other churches, require baptism before membership. Your baptism tells us what we need to know before we can commit to treatingly, treating you like a member of the body of Christ. 
your baptism tells a local church that you are a member of the new covenant. It tells a local church that your sins have been forgiven, that you are in a new relationship to God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you intend to walk in obedience to that. Your baptism tells us that you belong to Christ in his death, and that your old self has died with him, and in his resurrection, and that you live in newness of life. It tells us that you are awaiting your full and final resurrection body, but that even now you are not your own. You were bought with a price. It tells us that you are a member of the universal church, and that as the first act as a member of Christ's body, you obeyed the command of Christ and got baptized. In sum, baptism tells us that you're a Christian and that that is how we should treat you. Hopefully you can see how all of this comes together and, and, and sort of answer the question as to why Christ gave baptism as a gift to his church collectively, but as a gift to individual believers. It is a sign, it is a seal that points to several important spiritual truths. It allows a local church in tangible, practical, visible ways to see and deal with what has already happened in the spiritual realm. It is therefore part of your assurance. Because by making a public proclamation with Christ, you are giving your local church permission to treat you like a Christian. You are asking, even insisting, that we hold you to the standard laid out in Holy Scripture. It is a visible request that we treat you like you've died to yourself and live to Christ. And a faithful church will love to honor that request. We would delight in honoring that request, but you must make it. There are many reasons that people give for not being baptized. In, in the church today, there, there's much confusion on the issue. And it's a shame, really. I think it's an area that Satan can use to attack the Christian because it is the very first command given. And if he can get a Christian to disobey on the very first command, he can start a trend in that Christian's life. It is therefore significant. And if you are not baptized, you need to examine your heart before the Lord. And you need to examine your soul. And you need to think over some of the things that we've looked at this morning. Could it be that you are not baptized because you've never been taught. You didn't know what it was. You didn't know why Christ had given it. I hope that you don't have that excuse anymore. Or perhaps you haven't been baptized because you're proud. And to be baptized would be to admit that you haven't yet been baptized. Or it would be to say that what happened to you earlier on in life was in fact not a baptism. It was in fact incorrect. And so there's, there's pride and there's other identifications with other people and other institutions that you value. And so by getting baptism, baptism now, 
would be kind of like publicly admitting that you've been wrong or at least disobedient for the years you've known Christ. Or perhaps you haven't been baptized because there is no internal reality. And we have to allow for that possibility. Perhaps you don't want to publicly identify with the kingdom of Christ because you know you're not really a part of it. You're happy to hang around the true fellowship. But you don't really want to identify with Christ's death because you don't really know if you've died to your old self and died with Christ. Perhaps you don't want to wear the team jersey because you know in your heart you're not really on the team. Baptism is for believers. It is the way we recognize you as a believer. And so I would really encourage you, if you have not been baptized, think to yourself why that is the case. Because if you identify with Christ, you should receive that gift and we would be delighted. We would be thrilled to give it to you and then hold you to obedience to the new covenant. Hold you to that standard. And if you waver off that standard, we can give you the assurance because we would know how to treat you. Because if you fall into sin, you have brothers and sisters who can come alongside you and say, you can't do that. I know you can't do that because that is an action of the old self. And you stood in front of all of us and in visible, memorable ways told us that you had died to the old self. You can't now walk in the old self. But if you've never said that to us or any local church, then what should we hold you to? That is why we would insist that a person be baptized as a believer before we would admit them into membership. It is not because it is a legalistic thing. We do not think it contributes to your salvation. It is an obedience thing. Baptism tells us where you stand. Are you claiming to be a member of the new covenant or are you not? Baptism tells us where you stand and how to treat you so that on the day of judgment, you know you really are a citizen. You know that you are a citizen of that kingdom because you have the passport of that kingdom. And you have been using it in a local church. If it was a false passport, if it looked real, but in reality it wasn't, you would know because your local church would tell that to you. But for a baptized believer who has been in the local church, you can have the assurance and confidence that you really are a citizen of God's kingdom. You really are a member of the new covenant. You really are identified with Christ and you really were baptized into his body. Because you have the assurance of that, you have that identification and it has been tried and tested. And it has served as the foundation for all of your relationships in the local church. And it is this reason that Christ has given the gift of baptism to his local church. It is so fellow kingdom citizens can identify each other and hold each other to the standards associated with our new reality and with our great king. Let's pray. Father God, we understand that there are some things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. We understand that baptism isn't one of them. And though there is confusion, we pray, Lord, that you would cut through the confusion in our minds this morning. 
we pray, Lord, that you would impress upon all of us, those of us who have been baptized, to continue to walk in newness of life. And for people that are not yet baptized, but are in fact in the body, you need to impress them to get baptized, that we know where they stand. And Lord, we pray that as we look back on our baptism, that we would recognize that it symbolizes and points to spiritual truths and realities that we did not do. We did not choose you, but you chose us. But Lord, we did make the commitment to live in newness of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would graciously empower us to do that through your Holy Spirit, that we would fall more and more in love with you, that we would fall more and more in love with your word, and that we would fall more and more in love with your body and your bride, that we would love her and cherish her, and that our fellowship would be rich and vibrant because it is based on the fact that we all belong to you, for we are all in Christ, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.